0: Welcome to the Extraction Podcast. I'm Alex Hamer. During the mining downturn between 2014 and 16, companies had to look harder for project funding as usual debt equity split from banks and public markets was no longer available. Private equity funds stepped in to partly cover that space, lending money to miners or taking royalties in return for cash, and are now major players in the junior and mid-cap space. Ryan Resource Partners is one of the major PE funds, and we've got portfolio manager Philip Clegg on the podcast this week. His most recent deal was with nickel company Horizonte Minerals, handing over $25 million in exchange for a 2.25% royalty on the Araguaia mine in Brazil. Orion has also backed Namaska Lithium and took over Irish gold company Delradian in 2017 for $350 million. Phil, why can't a lot of mining companies just call a banker and ask for development cash? Why do they come to you, Philip?
1: Well, we get asked that question quite a bit, actually. But The truth is that the generalist... Equity markets um, have been close to mining development companies for a good number of years now. A number of investors have actually retreated from the sector to look at um, other sectors such as things like cannabis in Canada and crypto and so on and so forth. And so particularly in Canada and also in the UK, those equity markets have been really quite close to, to, to companies that are looking to build assets. On top of that, the commercial banks that provide debt finance to mining companies those have largely retreated from construction finance stories. And so it's not like if you're a, a mining company, you want to build an asset somewhere. You can just pick, pick up the phone to your, to, to your bank and say, I want to borrow this amount of money. It's, um, it's just not available to those companies. And so that has really formed the rise of private equity firms producing development finance solutions for, for mining companies wishing to build assets in particular, but also companies... Um, that are looking to buy producing assets as well. We provide finance to those guys. So, why do they come to us? Well, an important part of the way that private equity funds are structured in the mining sector is that we have the ability to be a patient form of capital. That means we can see through a cycle. Whereas, you know, the public equity markets, you know, they're up and down like a yo yo according to commodity pricing and general market trends. So we can see through that because we, are, you know, we have funds that are at long in duration, up to 10 years. On top of that, we're a very flexible form of capital. We innovate and we tailor our solutions to mining companies. Um, we listen to their needs, to listen to their desires, and we create structures for them. And in doing so, we actually invest across the cap structure. So a company could come to Orion and say, I'd like to raise um, some debt finance and I'd also like to raise some equity finance. Maybe I'd like some meds as well, perhaps in the form of a royalty or a stream. And we're able to do all of those things for the company. And so you can think of us as a one-stop shop solution for companies wishing to build assets. The final thing I've mentioned about Orion really is that we have scale. Um, you know, we manage $6 billion now. Um, and so I think that makes us the largest um, guys providing Finance
0: to mining companies. Sure, with that view of across a few years, right now we're we're seeing gold, nickel doing really well, and retail investors might might see that as an opportunity to to jump in to those commodities. I mean, do you, do you take a, a longer term view on that kind of thing, and, and do you think that, well, gold and nickel specifically, have are they already too expensive for for a normal investor to to throw some money in?
1: Just taking the first part of the question first, you know, as I mentioned before. You know, we do have a long-term view on commodity prices, which you know is long, and we have the ability to invest for the cycle. So we can hold on to our investment if there is a downturn and wait for uh, the uptick and then exit those investments. We spend a huge amount of time thinking about which commodities we like and why. And we try to get ahead of the curve, ahead of the moves in prices like we have seen in gold. And when those moves take place, is, you know, it's inherently difficult to predict you know, analysts have been forecasting the move in nickel for years, and so it's been anticipated. So, um, yes, retail investors and some of them may need to have patience, but equally, when commodities move, often the trend is your friend, and gold actually is a decent example of that since, well, broadly speaking, June of this year. One thing to bear in mind if you're a, a retail investor is that you know many people would say that the gold equities are not really pricing at spot prices yet. Now, this could mean that investors expect the price to reduce. Perhaps it means that investors don't expect gold companies to fully realize the leverage that their earnings should realize from those prices. People don't know. It could just mean that they're undervalued. But in terms of the price itself, um, with so much uncertainty in markets generally and the potential for further U.S. rate cuts, I reckon the, the general setting for robust gold price is actually pretty good for the next few years. And so... it. It seems as though the gold price has potentially found a new base at around fifteen hundred. And actually there's been some reports of late with some analysts projecting that we could see a two thousand dollar gold price in the next few years. So in terms of optionality, in terms of positioning, I would say that, you know, gold should always be part of anybody's portfolio. But right now, I don't think gold equities are a bad place to do.
0: Okay. And we we've got the, the base metal space there as well with nickel doing well. Do you think there's a this a scenario in which gold can be strong through uncertainty and and US financial, you know, I mean lo, you know, low interest rates basically? Do you think there's a space where where base metals can be high as well through through strong demand, through through China and and more positive indicators? Can those two things happen at the same time?
1: Well we're kind of seeing that right now with nickel versus the other um, base metals. So just as a general rule, you'd expect with US dollar strength. With with commodities priced in U.S. dollars, you'd expect commodities to to, to not do so well. And, you know, hand in hand with that is if the the economy at large is, is suffering, as we're seeing today, mainly as a consequence of trade war, you'd also expect that base metals, particularly something like copper, being a bellwether for the global economy, would not do so well. But Equally, you can't just look at base metals as a whole. You have to consider each of them individually. Because each of them have different supply-demand fundamentals, and this time nickel is different. The fundamental drivers for nickel are actually pretty strong from a demand perspective. Because we also think about demand, supply, and demand in commodities, perhaps other than gold, but supply and demand from a demand perspective. You know, we've got solid stainless steel growth, which is the main um, driver of demand in nickel. It's a later cycle of commodity. And there's also this new usage of nickel which people are anticipating and it is increasing and it's expected to increase very significantly over the next five years. And that's the usage of nickel in, in the battery market, particularly in electric vehicles. That will make up about half of nickel usage in a matter of a decade. And so there is this forthcoming need for additional supply. From a supply perspective, um, the key driver of the latest move in nickel has all been around Indonesia. And there have been um, rumours for a while, actually, that the Indonesian government were going to bring forward a ban on nickel exports from its country um, from 2022 to 2020. But this was actually confirmed last week. Uh, sorry, not last week, I think it was three weeks ago. And um, and, uh, and, and so that, that has, has, has basically meant that nickel has increased from, broadly speaking, around $12,000 a ton to today at around $18,000 a ton. If you take that amount of supply at the market, it's going to have an impact. Um, So inventories are reducing in nickel. um, But I would say that it's probably, there's a very good chance, a very good chance that we'll see even higher nickel prices. Not yet, necessarily, but that leg up might be for, you know, it might happen in a couple of years. And the key reason for that is that the incentive prices, which is basically the price that a mine needs to um, justify its construction, um, particularly for nickel sulfate projects, uh, projects which are used in the in the, in the in the battery sector, those incentive prices are high, really high, probably around twenty-two to twenty-three thousand dollars a ton. And so a mine needs to see those prices to be built. And so as this electric vehicle revolution Materialises, right, and um, we need to see those prices to incentivize new supply. So, in a few years, we'll see higher prices again in nickel. I think.
0: Okay, and and you know, you, you talk about the commodity cycle there, and Orion's made deals. You know, you, you backed massive lithium in two thousand eighteen. You know, you've been big on gold. There's there's other base metals in there as well. Are there any moves that you think you missed in the in recent years, or, or wish you you could step back from in hindsight? Of course.
1: So, great question. I would say that the key point from our own perspective is that we have a, a balanced portfolio. And so, as a general rule, we'll tend to be invested in most major commodities at any one time. So, not sure if we've ne- ever necessarily missed a price move of a major commodity. But um, I would say that Palladium had a great move last year, and now this year as well, and now actually it's just reached an all-time high. And for a private equity firm like ourselves, Actually getting exposure to Palladium in jurisdictions that would be acceptable to us is really, really quite tough. There just aren't really any assets out there. Um, so we're not going to beat ourselves up about missing that. But actually, our hedge fund, which operates independently, our private equity fund, did excellently out of that trade anyway. So that was probably the one that we missed. But, you know, what? no one has got a crystal ball. You're not going to get them all right. And we do, as I mentioned, a huge amount of work to get ahead of the curve to try and predict the price movements and then try and position ourselves in the best assets and the best structures in the, in the most prospective commodities. We, you know, we've been bullish on gold for some time, and our second fund, um, which is just getting to the end of this investment period, is is overweight gold. And given the price action that we've seen this year in gold, that, that fund should perform really well. We also did excellently out of zinc in its last bull market. Um, we bought out uh, a zinc asset in Macedonia, and the whole period of that investment actually lasted the duration of that bull market. You mentioned lithium. Lithium has retreated um, over the course of the last year, year and a bit. It's something that we actually expected to happen. And so what we do to protect ourselves in those situations is we choose structures in which to invest that, that mean that the, sort of the, the, the valuation of our investments don't get overly um, affected by that. And so in the case of Namaska, I mean, we won't see production, from, from that asset until 2021-2022 when you know, lifting prices are projected to be returning back to, to attractive levels. So we don't actually mind that during the construction period there has been a little bit of a downturn. In fact, we knew it was going to happen.
0: Sure. And you've been at, at Beaver Creek at the Gold Conference this week where I'm sure you were pelted with investment propositions from from juniors. What are some of the, the things you look for in a company before before diving in? What, what are What are good signs? What are bad signs?
1: I mean, we look at all sorts of things. We, do, we actually do months, months of due diligence before investing. The first thing we look at, though, is, is, is the quality of the asset. So, you know, what makes a quality asset? Really, it comes down to um, the cost structure of the asset. So what are we looking for? We're looking for a low cost of production. We always try to position ourselves in what we call um, the bottom half of the cost curve. So, i.e., if the price reduces, other mines suffer before you, you suffer. There needs to be acceptable capital expenditures. You you have to believe that assets can be built um, and and thus can be financed. We look for geological upside. So if you do more drilling, you can increase the capacity of an operation down the track, maybe increase its mine life and other optionality. So when I think of optionality associated with, with an asset or even a company for that matter, it's always around can you see... More than say two or three ways to create value in that company, and another hugely important thing is the quality of the team involved. You have to believe that the team can build or operate the asset. you have to believe that they have the capability to raise the finance. you know is the team right for, for the vision and the strategy of the company? So we've spent a lot of time really getting to know the teams, many of which we know already um, before making an investment um, and to really understand their qualities we Look at technical risk. We have our own in-house technical team that look at the technical aspects of all of the deals that we do. So in, in, in simple terms, how easy or hard is it going to be to produce at the rates you expect to produce at? Geopolitical risk is important. So Orion has the ability to go into high-risk jurisdictions, but it's never going to be you know any more than a, a minority of the portfolio. Typically, we invest in what we call tier one mining jurisdictions. So we're talking here about companies in countries like Canada, Australia, the US, Chile.
0: Those are good examples of high-quality jurisdictions for mining. And then high-risk might be something like the, the DRC.
1: The DRC is, yeah, is is very high-risk. We've never made an investment there. Mm-hmm. Other African countries, but not all African countries, are higher-risk. And, you know, you never can do anything in North Korea. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, so we're we very selective in terms of where we go. And if if we do go into a higher risk jurisdiction, then of course we do diligence on that jurisdiction. Uh, the commodity exposure is obviously really important. It's um, very hard to beat commodity price, so so we do try and position ourselves in the best commodities. Um, and then structuring is important, as I mentioned at the beginning of our chat. You know we're able to invest across the cap structure from the perspective of Namaska, one that you mentioned previously, the most attractive structure for that asset. Um, from our perspective it was in the form of a stream, which is a bit like a royalty, um, because it provided, you know, the kind of downside protection that we wanted, but equally some access to the upside. And so that's why that one works in the case of Namaska. In other situations, you know, we might create structures that provide a fully comprehensive financing solution for the company. It really depends on the situation. And then of course, you know, we have to consider valuation and pricing of our instruments. You know, we, we will not enter into a transaction unless it gives us um, an acceptable
0: return. And on that return, I mean, do you, do you have a hard and fast rule for, for selling out if something's dropped a certain percentage or, you know, just trying to help investors get an idea of, of um, you know, because it's, it's the hardest thing to, to work out when to sell out of a company um, unless you have a point that you've, you've decided on that you have to get out or something major happens and you have to get out quickly. I mean, do, do, do you have a point where you just have to sell out of a company?
1: No, we don't We don't have a point where we have to sell out of the company mm-hmm. we, we We monitor our investments continually for you know for everything that's going on within within that particular company, including its valuation, and we'll assess that value equation on a continual basis and If the time comes that we wish wish to sell um, then you know we'll we'll find you know, we'll, we'll start proceedings to be able to sell and you've got to recall here that, that we're investing right across the cap structure. And, and you know, even within just one aspect of the cap structure, equities, there are different ways to exit. And so, thinking about that liquidity event for us is something we also have to do continually, i.e., what is our strategy for exit? And so, sometimes what we do, um, and probably the, the best example of this is um, our transaction with the Cisco, where we, we effectively packaged up um, a portfolio of our streams and royalties, um, and we did so to realize. Um, an enhanced valuation by the sum of the parts was greater um, than than individually and sold that as a package deal to to a cisco so you know we we really try and be creative to work out what the best way is of creating value for for our own investors
0: okay and um uh, last question Philip um, you you've moved from um, being a major shareholder and I'm sure a very influential Voice in terms of how companies are, are run after you've you've made a deal, but you're a you're a mine owner now or a, or a project owner in in Ireland through Delradian. How have you found that transition? were there any any shocks, any surprises going into that that I guess that ownership role?
1: So we, we I mean we have done that before. You know there have been a number of examples where we've backed management teams or companies um, to acquire assets, and you know in, 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 in a number of cases it has been all equity or close to all equity um, financing solution. That range is a bit different because it was a take private. And I don't think, from my from my recollection, there has been a um, a take private by a private equity company in the gold space by a private equity firm before. So you're right, it is a little bit different. But as I said a moment ago, we're not operators. You know, we, are, we, we are financiers, financing partners of management teams and companies that wish to do things including acquire producing assets, so it, we're not you know we we don't have management control of that company it has its own management team that we have decided to back. yes, we do have um, uh, control of the board which is as you would expect given that we own almost the entirety of the company, but it's not our job to manage the company we we give that to you know people that we think are and fully
0: qualified to do so. Sure. So not, not too many late-night phone calls for you then, just not too different from before.
1: Well, <laughs> wouldn't necessarily say that. There's uh, <laughs> late-night phone calls every night of the week.
0: Oh, I don't envy that. All right, Phil, let's wrap it up there. Thank you very much for chatting. Um, interesting to hear about your position on, on various commodities and um, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: No problem at all.